When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply guys welcome to this week's podcast episode and today i've got a really fantastic guest sophie deslaurier and she's from toronto she's a love and money coach and i know for all the physicians out there we're going to talk about healing from the past reclaiming your power the law of attraction building wealth it's going to be a great discussion on spiritual emotional wellness and i'm happy to bring her onto the stage so sophie welcome Thank you so much, Christopher. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so uh, you have a really uh, powerful story. Uh, so tell the audience about it, and uh, you know we'll dive right into it. Sure. So um, I spent most of my career working in the corporate world, working for very large organizations across North America, companies like BlackRock, iShares, U.S. Cellular, big banks in Canada like Bank of Montreal, CIBC, and uh, my mandate was to teach and train the leadership body, the sales leadership body, so the VPs of sales, the directors of sales, the sales managers, how to be more coach-like in their approach so that they could um, motivate their staff to align to the strategic vision and to go out there and get more business and close more business. And then I would train the sales teams in the specific communication and sales and negotiation skills. And that was a fabulous part of my career. I got uh, pretty burnt out being in the corporate world around the age of 39. Um, and then I started doing my own events. Fast forward a few years later than that, I went through a divorce. I was married for 18 years. Mm. We consciously decided to get a divorce. We just grew apart. It actually does happen. Our values and needs and what we wanted out of life changed. Um, during that time, I... Divorce took about 18 months. During that time, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I had stage one breast cancer. I had repartnered during that time. And the doctors told me that I was not a candidate for chemotherapy, which was, which made me happy. But I, they wanted me to do tamoxifen and 25 radiation treatments. Oh. And at that time, I was 42 years old. I uh, had lived a pretty extravagant lifestyle. You know, I had built a a thriving coaching practice in the corporate world. My ex-husband and I had a built of a big business. I used to travel a lot. Um, there's not really anything else I really wanted to do in my life. I'd been to several countries, seen several beaches, you know, been, been to fancy restaurants, but I hadn't had the experience of being a mother. And so I really wanted to at least try. I um, thought that it would be a very big regret for me if I didn't try. It was okay for me not to get pregnant, but it wasn't okay for me not to try. I was okay. I, I'm the type of person who's okay to live with failure, but I'm not to, okay to live with regret. And that would have been a big regret for me. So I told the doctors that I was not going to do treatment. Uh, they were not that supportive, to be honest with you. Um, and at the time, I did ask my doctors, like, what's the the radiation treatments they said gave me a 15% benefit that the cancer wouldn't come back. And so I asked them what 
the, the chances were the cancer would come back if I completely changed my lifestyle. And they said that that just wasn't something that they took really into consideration. It wasn't scientific. They couldn't like put that into the mathematical equation. So I uh, told the doctors that I wanted to get pregnant. They sat me down and said that getting pregnancy was a threat for the recurrence of cancer. Uh, we had to have some very serious conversations about what it would look like to be a pregnant woman if the cancer came back. And I decided to go for it anyways. It was the one thing that I wanted to try for in my life. I wasn't, I knew that at 42, 43-ish years old, that had I gone forward with two years of tamoxifen, 25 radiation treatments, I would then be 44, 45 years old. My body would have gone through so much more stress and trauma. And I just, I didn't believe that I would be able to get pregnant after that type of treatment. And I really did believe that they told me I had a 30% chance that the cancer came back um, systemically and radiation would take that down to 15%. I just didn't think that doing that type of treatment for a 15% benefit was worth it for me. So I went for it 18 months. I went for it. Sorry. Eight months after my lumpectomy, my partner and I were blessed with a baby boy. I had a brilliant pregnancy. I was monitored by the fertility clinics because of my age. I'm considered a geriatric woman trying to get pregnant. Um, so I, a fertility treatment was a contraindication for me because I was an estrogen dominant cancer. But they monitored me. And because it was the pandemic, one of the benefits of it was that I, I've never really waited in line for anything. You know, it was just, I was seen pretty quickly. And my doctor told me on several different occasions that I was having a miracle pregnancy. They would have their round tables once a week. I guess you doctors understand what that is. And you talk about the patients at the clinic and, you know, you talk about the challenges. And it was seen that I was having a miracle pregnancy. They couldn't understand how flawless the pregnancy was going. Emotionally, it was taxing on me because I, I, I guess everybody had a challenging time through the pandemic. Um, but you couple that with being pregnant and it like, you know, the fear of it and, and all that, it, you know, it had, a, had its impact. So yeah, the, my story is one of resilience and personal power. And um, I came out of retirement uh, from my coaching and mentorship career because yes, I can train in sales and leadership. Yes, that's in my background, but I fundamentally believe that the amount of personal strength and personal power it took for me to stand in the eye of the storm of the tornado through a divorce after 18 years to go for more out of life. And then at the same time, stand in the eye of the storm of a second tornado and look cancer straight in the eyes and move forward and, and go for what my dream was and to consciously create with the power of the universe behind me to make that happen for myself is a much more powerful story uh, and a much more powerful um, offering that I have to the world. And that's something that I really want to share with people because I believe there's a lot of people uh, in fear for whatever reason that is. Um, and they want to consciously create the life that they want. And sometimes uh, hearing a story like mine can empower someone, cause them to step up. And yeah, so that's why I'm here. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, it's quite an inspiring story. And um, one thing we can talk about is just empowerment and uh, resiliency. And, um, you know, part of that is talking about forgiveness. And yes. uh, like my niece and nephew, they're like kids and they basically they're lighthearted. But then like, you, you know, my grandma or whatever, you know, older relatives, they're like heavy and, you know, burdened and, you know, all this uh, emotional trauma, you know. So why is forgiveness important and how does it affect your overall health and confidence? 
Well, forgiveness isn't necessarily about um, condoning the behavior or releasing the other person in any way. It's not about forgetting the incident, whatever that incident is. And um, I just want to take a minute to step back for a second. I mean, I think the older generations, they are carrying a lot of um, generational trauma that's been passed down. And so some of what they're dealing with is their own stuff to forgive. And some of what they're dealing with is conditioning and what their parents taught them and the, what society has taught them to believe. And so I think forgiveness in that respect happens twofold, right? What's your first lived, my first experience, my lived experience thing to forgive? And then what happened generationally or or societally, culturally, historically, that needs to get forgiven as a collective. So there's two, I think there's two different ways to look at it. Um, Why I think it's important, regardless if it's a lived experience or if it's a generational experience, is because it gives you peace and it gives you new energy and it gives you freedom. See, what happens when we're holding on to uh, a wrong like we're, we're holding on to something that we feel we were done wrong by is it creates resentment and it can create negative self-talk. It can create anger. It can create grief and all of those negative emotions. They can put you into a loop and that loop can spiral you. And if you get stuck inside of that kind of a loop, it can have some serious negative impacts on your health. So if we want to talk about why forgiveness is important, one is for your own aliveness, for your own health, for your own mental well-being, for your own capacity to be able to sleep at night, you know, for your own ability to tap into your full potential, your full new energy to create whatever it is you want to create. Because holding on, it's just like, it's like weight in the body. It's like walking around with 50 pounds or 100 pounds or 150 pounds and it's it just drags you down and it actually, I feel like, stops you from really getting what you want out of life. Mm. I love this idea because I think what you're describing, because Oprah said you don't condone it, but you you don't uh, forget it, you just let it go, which is kind of, it's like a dichotomous concept. It's like you mm. you acknowledge that it happened. It's not okay, but you let it go. And it's like these two, like, right. opposing forces. <laughs> yeah. The other question is, um, so is forgiveness an event or is it a process? I think it's a process. I think that's a great question. Like, I don't think it's necessary. Okay, so maybe it could be both. I'd like to retract that. Maybe it could be both. And here's why maybe it could be both. You could have be somebody who has so much personal power and the ability to process your emotions quickly such that something happens and you can just like breathe it in, breathe it out, it's done for you. And perhaps all of us have the capacity to do that depending on how significant the wrongdoing is. Mm-hmm. Right? And so in, in that respect, I could consider it to be an event. The event happens, you take it in, you blow it out, it's gone for you, however you process it. And I do believe you have to feel it, to heal it, to release it. So if it's something that you've been holding on to for a long time, or it has a huge impact on you, like in my instance, you know, divorce after 18 years and cancer, just my own forgiveness of myself, um, it could take you some time to really process all of your emotions. And I don't think that you need to necessarily speed that up. I think there's value in feeling all of your emotions through it. The reason I say that is because I feel that's where all the learning is. So as you start to process your emotions, you can start to understand and ask yourself questions like, why did this happen? How am I responsible for this happening? What was my partake in this? And then you can start to get answers. And then you can start to see, okay, what would I do differently next time so that that doesn't happen? 
And then you can take that learning and like it's a code and then implant it into your mind and have it be something that you do differently next time, like in your visualization process. So uh, I think it can be both. I think it can be an event. It happens very quickly. And I think it can be a process. And I think inside the process, you can actually reprogram how you would address and handle a similar situation in the future such that you don't need to forgive because it doesn't have that same emotional charge. What is this idea of, um, you know, basically people holding grudges or they can't let go or like people just say, just let go, let it go. What's the issue going on with people that can't let go or just hold grudges for like 20 years, 30 years? Well, what's going on there? You know, that I think that's a, uh, it's, a <laughs> it's interesting, it's valid, and it's a challenging question to answer, right? Because it's so personal from person to person. So I'll generalize for you. Sometimes, like in clinical terms, I'm not a clinical psychologist or therapist by any means, but if, if I was to use that type of language, I might say they are developmentally stunted in some way. Mm. So they're like developmentally, their emotional intelligence, their capacity has been stunted by some particular trauma when they were young. So they, they, that might uh, hinder their ability to let go because they're coming more from a five-year-old's mind capacity you know i'm not trying to be rude or anything but really that does happen right uh and so that could really impact someone's ability to let go and then um sometimes people act out of spite and anger and they again it comes back to their personal power and their emotional intelligence and their ability to see the impact it's actually really having on them and i think too many of us believe that if we hold the resentment or the anger it's hurting the other person Sure, that person is missing out on a relationship with you. Sure, there's an impact based on how other people in the system, family system or societal system might see them. But ultimately, in my opinion, I think you're hurting yourself the most. Again, because that type of negativity in your body can create disruption and disease. And then ultimately, it really can make you sick. Yeah. Yeah, I love this. Um, that's it's interesting. I see that. But you know, some people take longer to emotionally mature. You know, what you're talking about is really deep, and uh, you know, depends on the person. Um, the other question is uh, toxic communication, and uh, you know, what is that? What does it feel like? Uh, you know, what does it look like? And um, its impact on relationships. Yeah, great question. Um, so toxic communication, I would sum up in one or two sentences as it's any form of communication that uh, intentionally and purposefully shuts down the lines of communication. So it looks like a withhold, like you're withholding, you're not, you're not being direct and honest about your emotions, your feelings, your intentions. Um, you withdraw, so you just like completely withdraw, go silent. Uh, or you give the silent treatment, like that's that's manipulative and it's a power play. It's like trying to control the situation. Oftentimes I find that toxic communication uh, go hand in hand with control, people who are have high need for control because it makes them feel like they have the power, the upper hand, and um, they can feel safe inside of that. It could be a very vulnerable spot to really talk about your feelings because people might be scared to be uh, rejected or abandoned, which talks about the abandonment wound. So stonewalling, withdrawing, withholding, blaming, uh, holding resentments, those would be all forms of toxic communication. Hmm, interesting. And the other thing I noticed is that um, uh, after COVID with, uh, you know, now people are able to work from home and, um, you know, a lot of people are starting businesses, going out 
working from themselves. And you notice that uh, just the corporate culture is basically inbreeding. And there's, you know, certain companies that are really innovative and, and moving forward, but, you know, most, most of the um, corporate culture is kind of just the same and getting worse. So is it, uh, you know, is it that, you know, people are, are self-selecting and just choosing people the same or, you know, what, what's, what's going on with this toxic uh, corporate culture? Like, why is it perpetuating and growing in the marketplace? Yeah. I think there's a lot of narcissism in leadership in the corporate world, to be honest with you. I think there's a lot of pressure to make ROI and to make sales. I think that human beings don't necessarily operate well under that type of pressure. And so it doesn't necessarily bring out the best in them. I think it's a top-down sort of thing. I think that if if there's control and domination and um, numbers-only oriented type organization at the top, that tends to filter down. And so anybody who's in the organization who might be more people-oriented, um, more coach-like in their approach, more encouraging, they might... Um, find that they don't have space to actually express themselves that way because the leadership from the top is just so focused on numbers. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I've, uh, I've noticed cause, um, the general sentiment in the world is just people being mean to each other, rude to each other, uh, which brings me to my next question is are young people need to be empowered with emotional regulation and communication skills. Um, and what do you mean by they don't need saving? What the, what does that mean? Yeah, it's so, I mean a couple of things by that. So when, if we start to take a look at our fairy tales, Rapunzel, um, Snow White, Cinderella, the, the lead female character in those fairy tales gets saved. And it's almost like our conditioning, our programming from as a woman, from a very young child, um, from the cartoons even that I've been watching or the fairy tales that I've been watching, it, it's subliminally telling women that they need to be saved the man is in power and and for the young men i'm not i'm not exactly sure how they get conditioned i haven't really looked at it in that particular way but to just overlap my thought process on why our younger generation doesn't need to be saved is because there actually is nobody coming you know even as a woman if i think i'm going to get saved by my prince charming that prince charming may come with a bunch of demands <laughs> <laughs> that go along with getting saving. And then what does even saving mean? Does that mean like somebody's going to provide for my financial needs? Is that what saving is? Or are they going to provide for my emotional needs? And if they do provide for my financial needs, like let's say my Prince Charming comes along and he saves me because of his financial situation, his status, his power in society, which tends to be the theme that's come along life, specifically for women in my generation. Uh, what what does he get in return for that? Like, does he have autonomy over decision-making? Does he get to say who I hang out with? Like, you know, I'm just curious to know what that exchange is. And from what I've seen, um, a Prince Charming who comes along to save a woman for because of his financial status or his power, it, it comes with something. There's something that it comes with. And I just don't fundamentally believe that our younger gen, I have a three-year-old son, I don't think our younger generations need to be taught that somebody's coming for them. Uh, because I don't believe somebody's coming for them, and I don't think they should be looking for that type of uh, hero. I think that they need to be empowered with how to 
um, make strong decisions for themselves, how to be independent thinkers, how to regulate their emotions, how to forgive in a timely manner, how to communicate in a way that's collaborative and engages people so that they can get alignment to whatever their vision is, so that they can have people take action, so that they can create partnership and team. I think those are the things that everybody and specifically our younger, younger generation needs to be developed in so that they can stand alone. I, I don't even endorse parents saving their children. I don't, in my opinion, I would not want to be saving my son as an adult or as a teenager. I would hope that I've instilled in him what he needs to know and learn so he can stand on his own two feet. I'm here to help him navigate. And I would if I need something happen. I'm not saying I wouldn't. I'm just saying I wouldn't want him to live his life thinking someone's coming to save him, even his own parents. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah. I love that. Uh, I love the idea just because uh, um, uh, empowering kids to think on their own feet and stand on their own two feet, be able to assert themselves, you know, put up boundaries and uh, just function in this world. Can I say more about that for a sec? Yeah. So, so another reason I'm so passionate about that is because cancer treatment wasn't aligned for me, you know, and to be very honest with you, I asked my, my oncologist, what are the chances the cancer comes back if I do nothing? And he's like, well, that's a completely different spreadsheet, Sophie. Like I got to pull that up out of the computer and I'm like, okay, well, can I see that spreadsheet, please? He's like, well, most people don't usually ask that question. You see, that's the thing. We need to train our younger generation how to ask the appropriate questions to get the answers so they can make informed and educated decisions. They don't just follow along the path that everyone else is doing. The answer came back is I had an 82% chance cancer didn't come back in the next five years systemically. And then every five years after that, it dropped a few percentage. I'm already 47 years old. I'm, I'm almost five years cancer free. So that means now my chances of the cancer coming back, uh, my chances not coming back has dropped from 82 to maybe 78. That was a risk that I feel comfortable to take to sleep at at night. If we don't empower our younger generation to be able to ask those types of questions so they can independently make an informed and educated decision, they could fall into the system and the system for that particular situation is to go do 25 radiation treatments and take tamoxifen for two years and don't get your baby. Uh, sorry, I just wanted to elaborate on that and give that as some context because that's why I have this like power or fire maybe inside of me because it's like, don't just not do your due diligence in life or learn what you need to learn to stand on your own two feet. Yeah. The closest thing uh, I talked, I love this, uh, how you described it. And, you know, the closest thing is like, for example, my parents' generation and um, it was like uh, the government's going to take care of you. You know, right. or, or your job was going to take care of you. And actually it was for my grandparents is the government. And then for my parents, it was a job. And, but uh, I, you know, I keep telling my offspring and my, it's like, nobody's going to save you. You have, you know, if you're going to depend on the U S government for your financial security, your SOL. Yeah. 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 No, hundred no. percent because the U S government's running out of money and corporate corporations, <laughs> they cut people. Yeah. Like you just press delete on your keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I'm happy you're selling that to your kids. It's important. So, uh, yeah, I, I love this this conversation. You have really an interesting view on things. How can people contact you, follow you, reach out to you, check you out on social media, et cetera? Thank you so much. Just my email is probably easiest. It's S as in Sam, D as in David, at Sophie, S-O-P-H-I-E, talks, T-A-L-K-S.com. That's sd at sophietalks.com. 
And Instagram is where I post most of my uh, insights. That's the, T-H-E, Sophie Delorier. So it's at the, S-O-P-H-I-E-D-E-S-L-A-U-R-I-E-R-S. Yes, and for all the audience out there, Sophie's uh, social media links, resources will be in the links and show notes. And thanks so much for uh, being courageous and coming on to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a good time.